Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment, featuring an extensive interview with Kelly Reichardt, along with an essay on her latest, First Cow. Also, an interview with the directors of the fiery genre mashup Baccarat, Michael Kreski on The Perseverance of Cinema, Amy Taubin on Sundance Highlights, and Pietro Marcello on the inspiration behind his Martin Eden. Support independent, nonprofit film journalism today at filmcomment.com. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Nicholas Rippold, and I'm the editor-in-chief of Film Comment. 100 years ago, an earlier flu pandemic struck the country and the world. Movie theater closings were widespread then, and one newspaper headline expressed the feelings of many. We miss our movies. Movie going, of course, might be the last of your concerns right now, but for a lot of us, we're missing the community that cinemas provide, not to mention getting out of the house a bit and seeing people. So we've begun our Film Comment Podcast at Home series, gathering together, remotely, to talk about the movies we're watching at home. While we can't do anything about our feelings of stir-craziness or dread, we can at least share movies and keep each other company. So please enjoy our latest installment, where I'm joined by Film Comment critical stalwart Michael Koreski, and my editorial colleagues at the magazine Devika Girish and Clinton Krut. We hope you'll follow along and watch with us, so we'll be posting links whenever possible to watch or read about the movies we discuss. Please note, since our connections during the remote conversation varied, you might hear different audio quality on Michael's microphone. Let's go to the conversation. Thanks for listening, and stay safe, everyone. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Nicholas Rippold. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Film Comment. And we are coming to you from our respective homes where we are safely out of harm's way, one hopes. Uh, And this is our special edition of the podcast where we'll be talking about what we've been watching with all our free, anxiety-ridden time. You know, we'll have different guests and hopefully have some uh, recommendations you might enjoy of things to watch as well. And I'm, I'm not alone in this endeavor. Uh, I could never be. So um, let's welcome my colleagues. Um, Devika, are you out there? I am present, alive. Alive, and we hope well. Uh, and, and my other editorial colleague. Uh, I'm here, uh, Clint. <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> it took you a second there. Um, but uh, memory loss is quite normal in these circumstances. Um, And then our special guest for this, our second installment, we are very pleased to welcome... Drumroll! Hey, it's Michael Koreski, all the way out here in Brooklyn. (laughs) So nice to see you all, I guess, see is the wrong word. It's actually kind of sad not being in some, like, you know, dingy room somewhere in the center recording this. (laughs) In a back room, yeah. Don't pull the curtain too much, Michael. Yeah, Yeah, people think we... You mean in the beautiful, cushioned, $100 million studio where we record all of our highly exclusive podcasts. The podcast lounge. The podcast lounge, indeed. So we are maybe a bit punch drunk, but we thought, you know, we could all use the company and we could all use the movies. So that's what we've been talking about. Anyone have news they'd they'd like to share generally? I I guess all the the closures have, have continued to pace, but... Maybe, hopefully, slowly people are 
connecting a little, trying to get some sense of community? Yeah, I'm just, I mean, I'm just doing the two things that I know that I can and should do right now. One is um, I donated to the Cinema Worker Solidarity Fund. Um, yes, people yes. haven't heard yes. about this. Maybe you've spoken of this already. We did, um, but no harm in mentioning it again. Okay, well, I'll mention it one more time. And thank you uh, uh, for you know people like Sierra Pettengill and Thomas Beard and everyone else, Nellie Killian, the people who are helping do this. Cinema Worker Solidarity Fund. Um, so there's that. And then there's also staying the fuck put, <laughs> sitting inside and distancing yourself and trying to do as many um, enjoyable things as you can to kind of keep your spirits up. And um, that's, that's, that's where I am. Yes. And I guess that's where, where we all are film comment busily publishing. Um, I wanted to say that I'm very used to the idea of self-quarantining from my childhood when oh. I would sit and tell. Well, you know, I was one of those kids and um, all the other kids were outside playing. I don't know. I literally don't know what they play because I wouldn't go out. I'm going to say it was stickball. I'm going to say they were playing stickball because I grew you up, grew up in, in the 20s. Brooklyn. <laughs> uh, no, I grew up in Massachusetts in the 80s. And the 90s, but every weekend I would go to I would go to the Chelmsford Library first, and then I would go to the Westford Library. And there was a limit; you could only rent four movies from each library. So I would have eight movies every week that I could keep for a week, and then I would go home into my room where I had a 13-inch TV and a VCR, and I would sit and I would watch all eight movies. And that was what my week was like as a child. Well, that sounds delightful to me. I I think I did a little something similar, just in terms of the library aspect of. you know, getting the maximum number of videos and, and taking those home and kind of uh, holding up with them, um, which, which, by the way, maybe quick plug, New York Public Library, uh, I guess, is having various online um, services. So everyone should check that out. I was going to say, yeah, I mean, I have all these memories of just holding up in the living room with the iPad, you know, and just um, with the iPad. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Her childhood. Two days ago. Yeah. <laughs> We've got somebody who grew up in like in pre-war America. Pre-war and then someone Brooklyn. who was born yesterday. Uh, no, I, I think this is, it is interesting. I think a lot of us who are cinephiles or bibliophiles probably uh, didn't think of it as quarantining, just gravitated towards, you know, losing ourselves in movies or books and sp- spending entire afternoons indoors. But somehow it, it's... It's harder to feel any kind of nostalgia for that right now. Yeah. Oh, sure. When it's compulsory, it's it's a little. Well, you, it's yeah. much harder to close out, close the outside world out. And I think you talked about that yesterday, Devika. Yeah, a yeah. Bit. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not equating the two things, but I do have a tendency to um, to kind of hole up and 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 kind of cram in as many movies as I can. So, um, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm well practiced for the apocalypse. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well prepared. Yeah, I know, but that, that's always like the, the funny kind of flip side. Uh, when you're a cinephile as an adult is that, yeah, you're going to theaters, but also you're turning around and at home also, um, watching a whole bunch of, of movies. Um, also worrying uh, about things like food, which, you know, you probably didn't have to Sure. Yeah. You know, think about I've been spending a lot of time cooking, actually, trying to um, make new recipes that I otherwise don't have the time or patience for. 
Oh, can you tell us? You don't have to give us a whole recipe, but I'm curious one or two dishes that you're cooking. Well, last night I made, well, okay, these are so uncomplicated. They're like 30 minute easy dinner. So I think this exposes me a little bit, but <laughs> I did make this great uh, brothy pasta with chickpeas. Mm. It's a Bon Appetit mm. recipe and it's like a one pot pasta and you just put in tomatoes and chickpeas and spices and pasta and you let it all cook. It was very easy and delicious. It's also because I read uh, a newsletter that the critic Simran Hans, who writes for The Observer in the UK, she does this newsletter and she did a COVID themed one in which she just talked about what she cooked that day. Uh, and how about how she's taking up these cooking challenges and just reading these detailed descriptions of sensory and olfactory pleasure, you know, just descriptions of taste and and things that give you sustenance and, and make you feel good. It was I, I, I just realized that's exactly what I needed. Yeah. Yeah. And also just the routines. I'm, I'm, I'm a creature of habit generally. Um, whether that is annual traditions or daily routines, I need them. And this has certainly kind of brought out that side of me a lot. You know, I mean, so not only are we cooking every day, obviously, but we're also mm -hmm. creating weekly schedules for what we're cooking. And we're putting oh, wow. exactly an hour at, at a, every day to turn off all screens and just read. Wow, um, that's then, really smart. You know, I, I, I think that kind of... Um, segmented ritualistic behavior is really helpful in times like this and and of course i'm trying to play piano as much as i can because music is one of the few things that um really kind of can shut the world out for me and and, and allow me to kind of just be in the moment yeah and i mean all, all of that's so important just because the part of the problem is just kind of information overload anxiety overload you just feel like your circuits are going to be fried. Um, but Clint, this time I heard, definitely heard you were going to say something. Oh, I was going to ask Michael what portion of the day he allots for uh, going out and hunting the zombie, the zombified vampires that, that are left roaming the streets. I'm imagining oh, well. him now as the last man alive. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't actually living a very rigid and segmented life and kind of planning everything out. Well, I am legend. People say that about me. <laughs> I have heard people say that about you. It's true. It's true. Yeah, it happens. Interestingly, we did just talk about an adaptation for as long as we could stomach of, yeah. a, of a I Am Legend. Um, we I couldn't guess really today. stick it out. None but of we, us we actually finished it watching it, I think. <laughs> so, 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 Michael, we, we, we ask you, we call upon you to take us away with uh, and, and tell us what, what you've been watching. What's, what have what's you been... been desperately seeking? Oh, Michael? I think that, that you may have some inside info. Um, yes, the one of the, it was actually it just came to me. I don't know why. Um, I well, I well, I realized that they had posted recently on um, or they had uploaded it to the Criterion channel, which of course is a great resource right now. And um, desperately seeking Susan, the Susan Seidelman film with the yeah, always was... wonderful Rosanna Arquette and the never that great on screen Madonna are. Uh, <laughs> I, I oh. think, it just what if what if oh, she's listening? I enjoy her immensely. Madonna, but if you're on. listening, Madonna knows at this point that she wasn't destined to be an actor. <sighs> I think that's okay. 
I think we all have accepted that, except that she's excellent in Abel Ferrara's Dangerous Game. I'm going to give her 100% True. props on that. But yeah. uh, Desperately Seeking Susan just felt like the thing that I wanted to watch right now. I wanted to see the clothes. I wanted to hear the songs. I wanted to get that like grungy downtown 80s vibe. I wanted to forget everything. It's just, everything about that movie feels so completely not now in every possible way. And, yeah. um, and Chris, my husband, Chris, had actually never seen it. So it was the perfect opportunity to, to go back to this movie. And I found it extremely comforting. And, and for those who haven't seen it, now's a good time, again, because it's on the Criterion channel. But it has, um, it's basically an update of a, like a, basically a 30s screwball film for that 80s milieu. And um, Seidelman really captures that like, zany quality. And there are so many twists and turnarounds. And it keeps you on your toes. And it's, a, it's an amnesia story. And Rosanna Arquette, who I, again, like I just... I'm so delighted by every time I see her on screen, you know, usually when I'm rewatching like after hours or something from the eighties, yeah. Um, I, I get, I get completely lost in it. And I think that I'm not going to say it's underrated because people tend, tend to like it, but I think it might be not talked about as much as an essential eighties film. I'm not sure why. Yeah. I, I would agree with that. Also the way it's talked about is maybe not as appreciative way as, as you're talking about it's more just like uh, like a guilty pleasure or something yeah, or something you're not true. supposed to actually think is uh, uh you know a, a quality filmmaking in some way well yeah and there's 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 such an amazing um central love story to that film which is between these two women i know that it has been written about um in terms of its queerness it's 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 certainly like a film that ha- has lends itself easily to queer readings. But when the two women who basically are kept apart the whole film, um, it, the idea is that Rosanna Arquette's, you know, she's, she's this stultified housewife with this rich asshole husband. And she finds herself drawn to this other woman through these personal ads. And she kind of uh, is envious of her life. And she ends up taking over her life and the two women sort of become one another, but they're kept in separate spaces throughout the film as they um, explore these other paths. And then when they finally lock eyes at the end, Oh, I don't know. I find it to be so like dead romantic. I love it mm. so much. Oh, it's funny you mentioned after hours. I just, I just watched it as well. There, there's something about Rosanna Arquette as a, a particular kind of, uh, you know, downtown or like, um, or, you know, Mm. fig fig figure that's 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 interesting it's interesting that she plays that role uh, that you're describing in, in desperately seeking susan well that's her character in after hours is, is one of my favorite characters in movie history oh yeah i, I just yeah. I, I, i've seen that movie what 30 times and i still have no idea what she what her motivations were what she was going for i mean it's like these these crazy turnabouts that make you reassess the entire film and the character every few seconds i mean i i love that character so much surrender dorothy i think about that all the time yeah. Yeah. I, 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 there's just something after hours, I just was, yeah, just surprised anew at how it constantly surprises you without making it seem like it's a series of plot gimmicks, which almost anyone else's hands, it would, would feel like it's a sort of a, you know, situation type comedy. I, and, and just the, the sense of mystery it has about like the city at night, um, without like making it into like a, you know, just kind of a glorified, you know, outsiders, tourist attraction. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. That movie it always surprises me because you think it's going to be one kind of caper or something. And, and it's just really not that. Yeah, it kind of maintains that uh, there's uh, there's actually the threat of danger somehow. And even though it's a comedy and it's sort of madcap, you always kind of feel like maybe something really 
bad is actually going to happen to him as he's wandering through this neighborhood. Yeah. But also yeah. what's, what's a great, what's amazing about that film is he does so many bad things to other people. Yeah. Yeah. Right. He, he's no he's, victim. He is. I don't know. When, when the film turns around and he becomes so he becomes hunted, he becomes the prey, he becomes preyed upon and he kind of falls on his knees and asks God, why, what did I do? He actually does a lot of terrible things. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the movie actually punishes him quite fairly throughout. Yeah. Not, 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 not the, uh, the innocent man. So Desperately Seeking Susan, which brought us to After Hours, and and um, does someone else want to uh, jump in or should we sure that hear- we could keep the chain rolling with uh, Susan Seidelman because uh, there's on Criterion, there's a whole bunch of her films mm-hmm. streaming actually on the Criterion channel. And one of them is Cookie, which is not a movie that I think is very good. <laughs> <laughs> I thought but, was a child. Yeah, I, I watched it, I don't know, a couple years ago and I and I don't remember it thinking it was that good but it does star peter falk who is the star of my number one streaming comfort food show which is columbo ah oh yes i can hear our viewer ratings just shooting up at the mention <laughs> that's right that. the mere mention will just rocket the ratings yes no and uh there's a bunch of episodes available for free i think in various corners of the internet it's there's some i think it's again like the routine that michael was talking about earlier and the routine, like the, even the narrative routine is somehow comforting. You know kind of how it's going to play out every episode. You kind of know there's like certain things you're guessing at and like who the guest stars are always kind of interesting. There's a great episode with Johnny Cash as the murderer <laughs> um, in which he kills. He's a country singer who's con- who has a very controlling wife and he he uh, he murders her by like. I think he poisons her and then and then fakes a plane crash and jumps out of the plane at the last minute, breaks his legs in the process in order. That's his alibi that he actually was in the plane crash that killed his wife. But Columbo, uh, as usual, prevails. He gets to the bottom of it. What's interesting about that show is that it spans of like 20 years or something of television history. But there's episode there's a there are episodes that are directed by Ben Gazzara that are really uh, or at least there's one um, with Va- there's this one with Val Avery as sort of a side character and it just is almost like a scene lifted directly from husbands or something is like <laughs> transplanted into this 70s TV show um, yeah I, there's a lot to the, like there's definitely some stinkers too I'm not gonna lie <laughs> can I just say I love the path that Clint took in order to talk about Columbo <laughs> Oh, he went from desperate. You have to work human, hard. Susan Seidelman, Cookie, Peter Falk, and then Columbo. It's just the beautiful contrivance of it all. It's six six degrees of uh, six well, degrees of Peter Falk. Contrivance is my middle name. <laughs> I, and so I've come to the end of my Peter Falk of my Columbo spiel. Yeah. Well, Columbo. Uh, I mean, I heard, I saw someone talking about murder. She wrote along kind of similar lines. You know. You know, it's kind of comfort food. I think it was April Wolf, a contributor, um, that, you know, same kind of comfort food. Also, like, you know, semi-hidden displays of, 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 you know, whatever, interesting filmmaking and and a really compelling. I mean, it's always such a miracle to me that on TV shows like that, that you could hold people's attention, the same person, you know, Angela. I mean, not too much of a surprise for either of those actors, but still, I just appreciate that as a feat. A character that, in some ways, you know, unlike a lot of series television now, doesn't necessarily 
you know, developer change or evolve or is expected to have a character arc over several seasons, but still is like completely compelling and engaging. Yeah, I mean, Columbo doesn't change at all. And you know nothing <laughs> about his life outside of his work, outside of his, you know, Trench murder coat. solving. Yeah, that's it. And but he's he just like as soon as he comes in the room, the even the most bland episode is sort of enlivened and you're like excited again and kind of or I am. That should, yeah. could just be me. I was just I was gonna talk about his like muddled Socratic approach, which I, <laughs> I think is very entertaining. And also the 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 word at the door. Yeah, I just love that's a great move. Oh, the just one more thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm curious, what is everyone's ultimate comfort movie that you return to or that has uplifted you in various kinds of crises? Hmm. Well, you know, it's a, it, I've been thinking a lot about this question about comfort movies just because um, obviously that's what we all are talking about that we're doing. We're sharing them online. We're making recommendations to loved ones. Um, I'm trying to balance it out to make sure I keep watching more challenging things and things mm-hmm. that, um, you know, I might want to write about or things that say have been canceled from recent festival screenings, but I can watch them at home to support the filmmakers. But yeah, I, there's a lot of things that I'm watching and I do keep going back to um, like every week. I want to make sure I watch a certain amount of comfort, comfort films. Mm-hmm. The one that I watched right at the beginning of all this was um, crimes of the heart. I don't know if everybody knows about this movie, but I watched it a lot growing up and I saw that it had just landed on Amazon prime or at least I don't know when it landed, but it was on Amazon prime. So I just immediately pressed play and it basically has everything that I want in a movie, which is Sissy Spacek, Diane Keaton and Jessica Lange as crazy Southern sisters. (laughs) Is I mean, I've seen it so many times that, I know every intonation that they're going to say. I find their Southern accent <laughs> absolutely hilarious. Diane Keaton with the Southern accent. Diane Keaton with a Southern accent is the funniest thing I've probably ever heard. And she's, of course, well, I'm not going to say she's the kookiest because they're all kooky in their own way. It's actually based on a Pulitzer Prize winning play. Um, and the movie is directed by Bruce Beresford. And the translation to the screen, I'm assuming it got just a little nuttier. There's a lot, there's some slapstick in there, but it's basically these three eccentric um, sisters who have come back together because one of them played by Sissy Spacek, who is a comic genius in this, by the way, you might not know that um, has shot her husband. She shot her abusive husband. And so she's in jail and the sisters come back to support her. And then all of the, you know, demons of the past come out and there's some pretty serious demons. And I really actually care about these characters so much. And I've lived with them my whole life. I used to watch this movie a lot as a kid. Um, it just has great joy to it. Like when the sisters mm-hmm. get along, like when they're actually loving each other's company and when they're like playing cards or, you know, talking about the past and loving each other and hugging each other, it feels like this, it's this like sibling togetherness that I always kind of craved and always wanted. And then when things start to fall apart, I, I get genuinely upset. I care so much about these people. And, um, and so that's one of the reasons I go back to it, right? I, it's not necessarily the plot. It doesn't have much of a plot. Nothing much happens. It's just watching these women interact. Um, I just love them. I mean, th- that's pr- that's one of the things about comfort movies, right? Is they're, they're people who live with you. Right. And also we were talking yesterday, they engulf you in feeling, which I think it's hard to do right now. It's hard to have a feeling other than just fear or anxiety. 
And so it's nice to turn to something that is guaranteed to make you feel other things and make full make you feel full of feeling. Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment, featuring an extensive interview with Kelly Reichardt, along with an essay on her latest, First Cow. Also, an interview with the directors of the fiery genre mashup Baccarat, Jay Hoberman on Thomas Heiss's essay film Heimat is a Space in Time, Michael Kresge on The Perseverance of Cinema, Amy Taubin on Sundance Highlights, and Pietro Marcello on the inspiration behind his Martin Eden. Plus, Spike Lee's trusted costume designer Ruthie Carter, Isabel Huppert in Lulu, George Romero's Lost Film, and much more. Support independent, nonprofit film journalism today at filmcomment.com. I have talked about this movie a lot with many of you but my all-time comfort film which i watch again and again is the big city oh i love mm. that oh yeah mm-hmm. beautiful movie and obviously it's a, it, the satyajit ray film and it's just it ends on such a, a note of optimism um, amidst crisis that it's just sort of fail safe but also i think there's something about the classical filmmaking you know this very carefully crafted and beautiful to look at shots and and acting and mise-en-scene all of those things that Ray and many other filmmakers like him are known for I I was just thinking that I'm really seeking out movies that lean into beauty a lot um, and that sort of exhibit a kind of formal control that's Hmm. that's comforting right now I understand that completely. I've been like strangely dying to watch Barry Lyndon again, which is not a happy film at all, but there's something about the formal precision that I'm craving. Right. And you can sort of yeah. indulge in its frames and its colors. I don't know. Yeah. I've been trying to sort of psychoanalyze that. I wonder if, you know, there's some sense of this, uh, uh, the world being um, just cut up into these perfect frames mm-hmm. and a sense of, that, the sense of control that that seems to impose on a world that doesn't seem in control right now. Where the danger seems kind of open-ended and yeah, there's no horizon or real clear narrative to it. Or there is a narrative, but it's just kind of terrifying and dehumanizing. <laughs> this is a this is a good a really good point. I hadn't necessarily thought of my um, craving for that kind of control and precision to be reflective of the political moment. But this is what's going on now is, is, um, is a reflection of a profoundly dead system. You know, a lot of us know this in our hearts and know this and I've talked about this for a long time, but the fact that it's becoming so widespread, apparent and blatant, um, is making it seem even more chaotic and not just broken. And Mm. that can be really frightening. And, I don't I don't think watching going back and watching movies is a retreat especially right now when we should just be staying home but I I I do think there is something to what you're saying Devika something that's more um structurally uh, important or like to to our lives to our internal beings right I mean and that there's the final scene in the big city that you know is sort of imprinted in my subconscious um when the lead character has just lost her job and she's talking to her husband in this alleyway and they've had their own ups and downs. So she's not sure how he's going to react. And she hesitates to tell him what happened. And she just runs from one wall to the other and back. And then she raises her eyebrows, you know, gently. um, And 
of course he he tells her that he is proud of her and then they walk out and the camera zooms out it's this aerial shot of the big city and i feel like the idea that you could just distill this kind of hope this kind of us against the world uh you know this optimism into those five six gestures or movements of the last scene somehow that that feels like something i can cling on to well yeah and it provides you a narrative that you can that it helps you process the world right like but this. i'm i'm saying like there is also something about those formal movements that is helpful yeah, and not I just see, like yeah. the narrative the of po- hope but right. just yeah that you could distill all of these feelings into those really precise and evocative gestures and just kind of hold on to them yeah well it's it's funny i, I was thinking a bit about that kind of um former control and and what you know the pleasures or comfort it might it might afford when uh, when I was watching Stuff and Doe, uh, which is Christy Puyu's first feature, the feature he made before the death of Lazarescu, um, which is seeming like another kind of apt movie of helplessness before a crumbling system. Um, but Stuff and Doe, I mean, it's not the same kind of long takes that you know these kind of, but it has its own control that is weirdly, I won't say comforting, but just kind of riveting. It's basically about um, a young guy who goes, he basically is like a drug courier. He gets hired to, to, to drive some drugs. And the setup for the camera is just that basically much of the movie is just in the car and kind of swiveling among the occupants of the car or the, the, the truck that they're, they're transporting this bag of, of drugs. And, I, within that little structure, you see play out this this guy and his friend and her his friend's girlfriend, just these I don't know young people trying to get ahead in some way and and undergoing a kind of rite of passage of some sort. And you'd think it'd be really confining to have that camera there for a lot of the time and just swiveling, but um, it just it ended up being really um, an interesting close up on on behavior and just their their feelings as they developed and maybe the confinement just seemed normal to me as well at this point. It's like, Oh yeah. Yeah. They're in the same space for a lot of time. That's just how you live. I think that all different kinds of aesthetics are going to be striking us differently in these days. Mm. Um, Like last night I watched the green fog, the guy Madden Mm. film, which I hadn't Mm. seen. I missed it when it was in the theater and it wasn't exactly easy to find. And then he made it available as of yesterday, I believe on Vimeo. So I highly recommend everybody watch the green fog. If you're, especially if you're a guy Madden fan, but especially if you're a vertigo fan, which I'm sure most people who who listen to the podcast (laughs) are, and I'm a very big one and I'm not ashamed to say that. That sound makes me sound like a normie. (laughs) (laughs) So so over vertigo. The time. (laughs) I think, I I would be surprised if anyone thought liking Vertigo was oh I Vertigo. Basic. I think Vertigo's so last season, so basic. Right. Let me put it this way: not just liking Vertigo, but being obsessed with it is the greatest movie. Dressing ever up as Madeline—that's pretty normal, right? Everyone does that, right? <laughs> I I take an well, hour each day for that. I make my husband dress up as Madeline. Though. <laughs> he never looks right. <laughs> Um, no, but thinking it's thinking it's perhaps the greatest film. I, you know, I I because um, it won the Sight and Sound poll, and I actually at the time I think I did put it in the top spot. Um, so I'm one of those people who's to blame for that. Um, 
but because I think so I think about Vertigo a lot. So and Vertigo is a film I will watch again during this whole thing. But mm-hmm. the Green Fog is a fascinating, um, fascinating experiment. It's quite beautiful where he Guy Madden, I, in a way, I suppose, to express how Vertigo has basically haunted cinema for the past, maybe even before Vertigo was made, it's haunted cinema. He had, he created a narrative called completely from other films and re-edited them and tied them together to visually approximate the narrative in a linear way of Vertigo. And it's really funny and it's really entertaining and it it's really creepy. Every movie also happened to be shot in San Francisco. So he uses scenes from movies shot in San uh-huh. Francisco to retell the story of vertigo and then within sequences he uh, most like i would say 90 percent of the time he cuts out the dialogue so you'll have two people sitting at a restaurant and it will just keep cutting every every time they speak so you just have two people looking at each other across the table but because you have all the vertigo references easily accessible in your brain you're actually following the, the vertigo narrative and it, yeah. it, it's about an hour it's really spectacular but the oh, reason wow, that, that well, is this available online it's on Vimeo. He just made it available on Vimeo as of yesterday. And that's why oh, I watched okay. it. And um, I found that movie really comforting too. First of all, because I got completely immersed and lost in it. Almost kind of like Christian Mark Clay's The Clock. Talk about mm, you know, the ultimate yeah. immersive experience. Mm. Uh, yeah. But also because there was this sense of creating narrative from chaos. It's really just an hour's worth of clips. And they're re-edited into something that almost feels like a linear narrative if you're really paying attention. I found that really comforting. Vertigo reminds me of a movie I saw recently, not related to The Green uh, Fog, uh, but one of the last movies I've seen in theaters in the, you know, for the foreseeable future now. I saw The Truth, the Mm. uh, Mm. Koreeda film. The... It was screening as part of Rendezvous with French Cinema at Lincoln Center. And so I went to the opening night screening. The rest of that series is obviously now curtailed and postponed. But I'm I'm glad I sort of snuck that uh, in there. And it was preceded by a one-hour talk with Ethan Hawke, which was really Hawk great. Talk. Yes, a yeah, Hawk we- talk. Uh, and it, it was really wonderful. He was candid and sort of frank about the difficulties of making a film where, you know, he didn't speak the same language as the director. The director didn't speak the same language as the other actresses, you know, because Ethan is American and then Correa didn't know, uh, didn't speak fluent French or English. And then Deneuve and, uh, and some of the other actors in the film weren't like as comfortable maybe in communicating with uh, Ethan either with Ethan Hawke. I I'm just, it's like I'm on first name basis with him, um, <laughs> and and so it, I don't know. It was he was just very uh, open about that, about about the and about his various experiences of make having made films with filmmakers in Europe. He very self deprecatingly said that they all seemed to come to him because they wanted to work with Linklater or that they were enamored with Linklater and not him. That every time uh, one of these foreign directors. Uh, set up a meeting with him, they would always just talk about the before trilogy, which at some point we should talk about that as a comfort, uh, as comfort films I too, would, I guess. That's all I've been thinking about since you mentioned Ethan Hawke. I, I, right, I, I know. <laughs> more than any other film. Yeah, yeah and I, I guess that sort of haunts him everywhere he goes and in all his projects. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I was glad to have 
his talk preceded the film because the film really does reflect that. I think there's this kind of stiffness to it. Um, it seems like the actors who are all fabulous, you know, Juliette Binoche, Catherine Deneuve, and Ethan Hawke, they, it, it does seem like they're all in different movies a little bit. Uh, I, the film is about, Deneuve plays sort of a version, a parodic version of herself. She's this very successful, famous French actress. She's writing a memoir. Um, she's making a couple new movies. And her uh, Juliette Binoche plays her daughter. She's a screenwriter in America. And in the opening of the film, um, she's visiting Deneuve ostensibly to celebrate the memoir, but really because she wants to uh, read a manuscript before it goes out into the public because they've not had a very good relationship and she wants to see how the uh, character played by Deneuve is, is talking about her and their life together. And Ethan Hawke plays her like dumb American husband who acts for, who's an actor in a, like a streaming, like a web series and so Deneuve doesn't regard him as a real actor, and that's sort of a running gag. Um, and it, it, and the reason I, I brought up Vertigo is the film is really, it has this strange subplot where the Deneuve character plays the daughter of a woman who went out into space to um, and, and spent seven years in space to fight some kind of disease, and now she's she just doesn't age, and her daughter keeps aging. So you know, <laughs> it's very very Freudian and evocative, and and quite literally, you know, reflecting on what Juliet Binoche's character is has been going through as you know the daughter of a great beauty, as Molly Haskell put it in her review for yeah. our uh, last issue, um, and and so there, and so Deneuve goes on set, and she's enacting all these scenes that I guess seem to reflect on their own lives. And then there's this other track where um, there was a friend of Deneuve's when she was younger. There might be, there could be, like a, there was a hint of maybe a, you know, not totally friend heterosexual or not to, that it, it could have been a sort of queer relationship she had. And that character was a maternal figure to Juliet Benoist's character as well. And, the actress that Deneuve is acting opposite, everyone says that she reminds uh, she reminds everyone of Sarah, the that woman who uh, had an untimely death uh, because of an accident when she was younger. So there's all these like ghostly, uh, you know, incarnations of the past. All this doubling, uh, acting out aspects of of you know, what's going on in the film and, and the film's kind of backstory. So all I want to say is this film reminded me of Vertigo. I yeah. kept wanting to see this movie <laughs> and now I can't. I'm sorry. Yeah. I just kind of started describing it and <laughs> forgot why. Well, yes, because this movie reminded me of Vertigo and it was one of the last movies I saw uh, before, you know, the new age that we're living yeah. in now. And and I mean that's that's also it's worth mentioning that it showed in Rendezvous, but it's it was and it was going to open I think this Friday or March twentieth, um, but it's been right. postponed as a number of other films have been. So it's it's a movie that is 
uh, still awaiting its its premiere for for the public. Um, so it exists um, in a kind of interesting um, space. I mean, we I, we had already published an interview I did with Juliet Binoche about the film, where she says really interesting stuff about working with Deneuve and, and Coreda. Um, so um, yeah, that brings me. Yeah, back to, I mean, I guess it's good to, in other words, it's great to hear about the movie from you, Jamica, because <laughs> people can't see it right now. <laughs> yeah, I think I people, of course, I'm sure they'll seek it out when it comes out because it's a beautiful acting showcase. You know, Corrida is a great director, but it's such a weird movie. It's such yes. a, you know, it's a movie that um, is borrowing from these great films, not just Vertigo, but, you know, a lot of uh, French films that Deneuve, for instance, has been in. But it's also strangely, it lacks a kind of intimacy and it's somehow fragmented. And it did make me wonder about acting across language. And some directors do it really successfully and others don't. Um, I thought it might be nice just to bring listeners a taste of maybe something from a festival that isn't showing uh, now anymore. Because as many of you know, um, a lot of festivals have had to postpone or cancel their editions um and um, the reason i bring this up is because michael i think you had one or two films that you might want to talk about that people won't necessarily have the chance to see or maybe can yeah so you know the the first look film festival um at the museum of the moving image was obviously canceled um and as have been all film festivals for the foreseeable future, at least for the next few months, it seems. Um, so some filmmakers have been making their films available in some ways and others have been sharing links with uh, smaller groups of people. But there was a one thing I wanted to mention. There was a very cool little thing that um, this filmmaker Yara Sumeric did. Um, she was showing her, it was a, it's a short film. It's a 17 minute film that was supposed to premiere in a nonfiction doc shorts program at first look and she decided uh the weekend the weekend after it was supposed to screen to set up uh like a zoom q a uh, live event and 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 give people access to watch the film first and talk and her film is called if we say that we are friends and um it's a really lovely film and i i've also just found it to be an interesting one to watch right now because the premise is that there are these um uh it takes place in cape town in south africa and then there are these um all black communities who invite white people from wealthier more privileged backgrounds to have dinner with them and in other words the idea is don't just come through our neighborhoods take pictures of us and exoticize us but actually sit down talk to us about the inequalities and talk to us about the things that you can actually do that could affect change and just get to know us as people and the documentary just shows this and it, it kind of nestles in with them and you you hear some um occasionally slightly contentious conversations but it's actually mostly you know very friendly and good natured but i found it to be especially interesting right now just because of the social distancing and because the premise of the film is the importance of togetherness and that the only way that we can combat um perceptions of uh, or inequality and perceptions of inequality in other in other ways is to actually be together and get to know each other on a very close intimate face-to-face -face level so i found that to be extremely moving right now because i want to get back to that place 
mm. we are not in that place right now. And I think that film is a really um, a great reminder that we will get back there and that it's important to get back there. So I wanted to mention that film. And then there's another film called Ridge, which was directed by John Skoog. And this film was also going to be in first look, but it did play at True False. So it's nice that the, he's a Swedish filmmaker and it's nice that he got to show his film um, in one of the last festivals, I suppose that mm. will take place for a little while. And that's a, that's also a, a that's an extremely beautiful film, actually. Yeah. Anyone else? Did you see this one? Anyone? I did. Yeah, I did see it. Um, yeah. There's, it's almost hypnotic. The, the, the yeah. kind of, yeah. You know, bucolic beauty and, and, you know, I, yeah, it's hard to describe. It's really like, these series of moments and gazes in like a farm setting, basically in a forest. Um, also there's some, um, partying. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's stories that he kind of has been collecting, um, and he kind of turns them into hybrid, you know, hybrid doc form. Um, and it's, it's, it seems to be very much about the uneasy intermingling between, um, um, you know, farm machinery and how machinery has sort of taken over the, the the farming industry and the people who actually work on the land. And then also it, it, it takes in these other lives that are peripheral to those. And it, it really jumps around in a very prismatic way amongst these places and these settings. But the, the camera work is, is, it's always surprising and incredibly beautiful without seeming overly aestheticized in a way that I've seen before. I'm not entirely sure how he... Um, achieved that but I was I mean I would say pretty consistently I, I was um, I was amazed by the the approach the, to the to composition yeah he, he just has a way also of like I don't know playing with and playing against the the kind of rhythms of of, of being on, on a farm and, and around it uh, in, in surprising ways he gives you surprising perspectives on like you know, just I don't know, harvesting wheat or or and um and these strange crane movements that he does yeah. that I thought were drones. I mean, some yeah. of the camera work in there is just kind of miraculous. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's uh, it's a movie that reminded me a little bit of um Robinson Devore, um, who made a movie a long time ago called Police Beat. Um, which was also assembled from different little stories and anecdotes, uh, I think from a police blotter, actually. Um, and uh, I don't know, that sort of came to mind it's from like 15 years ago or something. Um, but yeah, John John Skoog, also um, just a, another a, a wonderful cinephile. Maybe we can get him on, on here to talk uh, for a bit. Um, he, he participated in a, in a first look event and was a pleasure to, to hear from. Yeah, the last, the last, uh, the last first look, the first and last, I think first, <laughs> first and last look. Um, um, but yeah, that was great. So I've, I've been enjoying, and I'm going to try to get some more, some more links if I can to watch some of those festival films. I think that's it's good to keep on that. It's as I said before, it's good to keep up on your comfort food, but it's also good to keep up on challenging new works that aren't getting out there. And I'm going to try how to balance that. Yeah, is. Is the movie you mentioned about the um, folks having dinner together, that one's publicly available now? It's called If We Say That We Are Friends. I be- I'm not sure, actually. I think what she did is she she sent out a call to people who were involved in festivals, and she said, I'm going to have a festival screening, and she gave people links and passwords. So I'm not entirely sure oh, okay. if we're going to make it totally public yet or where it's going to show next, but I do, mm. I do recommend looking out for it. 
All right. Well, um, I think we can probably um, wrap up there for for now, unless anyone has any final I, thoughts. I do have a final thought, but but I'm, I'm sorry to, to step on anyone if they if they were if they were going to say something. But I wanted to tell you, though I mentioned this earlier um, offline, um, Nick, since you had assigned me this article a long time ago, I had written about Michel Legrand after he died. And I have mm. been um, the composer, the great composer, Michel Legrand, who wrote, you know, the music for the Umbrellas of Cherbourg and the Young Girls of Rochefort and Cleo from Five to Seven and Yentl, which is great. Um, I, I have been making my way through the entire Michel Legrand piano book. So I'm learning every single song wow. in the book. Mm. And that's my big non-movie okay. part. Michael, come on. Yeah, let's, <laughs> let's hear it. Prove it. <laughs> Maybe you will someday. Yeah. No, but also you like can't that. do so many great things because it makes me feel bad. Who said it was great? What you're <laughs> learning every song. You are watching challenging movies as well as comforting movies. You are <laughs> cooking on schedule every day. Come on, this is too much. Well, I'm glad that it sounds like I'm being industrious, but to me, it's not. it sounds like I'm just lazing about here. <laughs> Personally, yeah. I find it inspiring. Yeah, it's uh, great. Thank you. I just want to hear that piano. <laughs> oh yes, and perhaps will, or perhaps we already have by now, depending if and when and where we can make a recording. About it. If you want a new yeah. film comment podcast theme song, just let me know. Oh my god! Yes. Oh my god! Yes, I accept that offer. That's just that just happened. We just closed the deal. <laughs> Look at us making deals. Um, we're going to hold you to that. All right. Please tune in next time uh, tomorrow. And also um, just be sure to look at our introduction uh, on, on our website for this podcast. Uh, you'll see we'll have a couple of links um, for checking out a couple of the movies. Maybe even and a recipe. Maybe even a recipe or two. Mm -hmm. So tune in tomorrow for all your needs at the Film Comment Podcast at home. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Yes. Thank you for coming, Michael. Now Bye, go Michael. Back to, uh, go back to your your perfect life. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm gonna Everything, Everything's coming up, Michael, huh? <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Lay off, lay off. Quick. Stopping now. Okay. You've been listening to the Film Comment Podcast with music by Greg Einge. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comment. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle. Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment featuring an extensive interview with Kelly Reichardt, along with an essay on her latest, First Cow. Also, an interview with the directors of the fiery genre mashup Baccarat, Michael Kresge on The Perseverance of Cinema, Amy Taubin on Sundance Highlights, and Pietro Marcello on the inspiration behind his Martin Eden. Support independent, nonprofit film journalism today at filmcomment.com.